So the reading this morning is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1 to 8. Uh, found on page 1155 on the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and we'll start at verse 1. Now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of, as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one, who who, as to one abnormally born. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the resurrection of Jesus, fake news or real history. It was at Donald Trump's first press conference as president-elect when the term fake news broke out of media discussions and into the mainstream. You are fake news, he pointed at CNN's Jim Acosta while refusing to listen to his question. Now, of course, the president has not been innocent of spreading fake news himself. Initially, he suggested that Ted Cruz's father was involved in the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and he perpetuated the myth that Obama had not been born in the United States, something he later conceded. But bending in the truth, on whichever side it's done, is certainly nothing new. It is propaganda, and the record of its use stretched stretches back to ancient times. Octavian famously used a campaign of disinformation to aid his victory over Mark Antony and Cleopatra in the final war of the Roman Republic. In its aftermath, he became the first emperor and changed his name to Augustus. And he dispatched throughout the empire a rather flattering and youthful image of himself and he maintained that those statues right until his old age. You may recall that he was the emperor at the time of Jesus' birth. But with the advent of the internet, we are all potential publishers and broadcasters. Until the internet came along, both publishing newspapers, printing books and broadcasting news was expensive to produce and quite expensive to acquire. What's more, with so few publishers and broadcasters, it was very easy to be regulated and even censored. When I was born, television had been invented, that um, uh, there were only, I think, about 10 national newspapers with a really a handful of owners, there was one television channel in black and white and about three radio stations. 
all run by the BBC. Today, it costs little to be a publisher or a broadcaster. You can do it from your smartphone. And as so many people do post and blog, it's increasingly difficult to regulate if any really nasty stuff appears, or it's difficult to sue if you are defamed, or to challenge rationally any kind of article where you seriously doubt its veracity. A most blatant example of fake news to hit Germany so far occurred last year over reports of a 13-year-old Russian girl named Lisa F., who had been raped in Berlin by refugees from the Middle East. The story received extensive coverage on Russian and German media, who reported the allegations that she'd been abducted on her way to school and ganged raped. The attack turned out to have been fabricated, as the Berlin police chief was quick to point out, and as the Berlin public prosecutor's office subsequently reported that the girl had spent 30 hours with people known to her and a medical examination had proved that she had not been raped. But having been shared so widely on social media and through Russian news sites, hundreds took to the streets in protest at the attack. In fact, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, went so far as to accuse Angela Merkel's government of sweeping the case under the carpet which, of course, merely heightened suspicions in Berlin that the Kremlin was uh, deliberately trying to cause trouble. So fake news is all around, and it can be very damaging. In fact, it could be very dangerous. So how, then, do we know that the Christian claim that Jesus was raised from the dead is not fake news, but true history? If we can't, on the balance of the probability of the evidence, which is the, the standard of civil law in the UK, reckoned it happened, we are wasting our lives and the lives of others if we manage to persuade them to embrace a risen Christ who didn't rise. For news to be real history, something that actually happened Rather than be fake news, we need, among other things, the following. We need multiple eyewitnesses. The resurrection of Jesus has around 550 different people. We need thorough accounts written up during the lifetime of the witnesses. Paul, whose account we've just had read to us, was just one of those witnesses to the resurrection and he's writing in the passage we had read within 20 years of his encounter with the risen Christ. And he says most of those others, 500 plus, are still alive. Then the accounts, they need to um, have the, their background context verified, preferably by non-Christian sources. Unfortunately, there are Jewish and Roman writers of the time, Suetonius, Tacitus, Josephus, who mentioned certain facts about Christ and the condition um, and, and really the confirmation of the setting of the gospel accounts, which makes them quite authentically accounts from the first century Palestine. 
And then, of course, having got those accounts together, they need to be preserved and they need to be reliably transmitted down to us today. Well, there are over 5,000 fragments of the New Testament in existence today from the ancient uh, period. They range from just a few verses of John's Gospel, for example, written, just uh, copied, just a few years after the original was written, to a whole Bible about two centuries later. And we can check all these different manuscripts against one another and plot a kind of family tree of them and see, actually, that any differences are both insignificant and incredibly minor. In fact, if you compare them to any other piece of ancient literature, if you compare them, for example, to Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, which historians today have no trouble in accepting as real history, they were written around about uh, 40 BC. The oldest copy is 1000 AD, and there are less copies from that period than there are on my hands. So, if you dismiss that what we read today is what the apostles wrote then, which isn't the same thing as saying whether it's true, the important point is that what we read today is their account. You'd have to dismiss every other book in antiquity. That's what we need for something to be real history and not fake news. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of who are still living, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles and last of all he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Now the reference to the abnormal birth wasn't a reference to any obstetric complications. It simply means that the Apostle Paul was the last of the 500 or so who encountered the risen Christ. And Paul is different from them in that he encountered the risen Christ after Christ's ascension. All the others encountered him in that six-week period between um, his death and his ascension to heaven. So as we turn and look at these few verses, Paul here identifies the gospel that was preached by the apostles, received by the Corinthians, and on which they had taken their stand and on which they are being saved, he says. And it concerned the truths of the resurrection of Christ. He regards these as, first of all, central truths. Of course, there are other truths which are important, such as Christ's virgin birth, his miraculous works, his glorious ascension, his continuing reign and his future return. But the death and resurrection of Jesus are, he says, of first importance, primary importance. And that's because the veracity of the Christian faith stands or falls on whether Jesus was raised from the dead or not. Even those most convinced of the resurrection of Christ acknowledge that. Paul does himself when he writes later in this chapter 
If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. We'd still be dead in our sins, he says, spiritually lifeless, estranged from God, with no way of reconciliation. Jesus may have died on the cross. He may have actually cried out that he's being abandoned by God the Father as he bore the penal consequences of sins. But we would never know without the resurrection whether God the Father had approved approved of the transfer of guilt from us to Jesus unless his verdict is clearly displayed, which he does by raising Christ from the dead. The resurrection affirms that God accepts that sacrifice of the innocent who paid for the sins of the guilty. And that being the case, God is saying the cross works as a means of satisfying his justice and displaying his love in drawing us back to him. The resurrection is evidence of God's approval. Without it, we would have to conclude that Jesus was simply a misguided martyr if he'd not been raised. Secondly, these truths are historical truths. They're not myths, they're verifiable historical events which we can pinpoint on a calendar as indicated by the phrase which is repeated throughout the Acts of the Apostles very often where it says, on the third day. Now there was some fake news around about the resurrection. The Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, had in fact bribed the guards. Matthew 28, 11 says. Now while they were on their way, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and counseled together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. How do we know that? Well, because members of the council, members of the Sanhedrin, subsequently became Christians, like Nicodemus, Gamaliel, and they, of course, let it be known. Now, Paul lists three individuals who saw Christ and three groups. The three individuals are Cephas. Cephas means rock in Aramaic. The apostle Simon was called Cephas by Jesus because he was to be the rock upon which the Christian church was to be built. And in most versions of the New Testament, Cephas is translated into the Greek Petros, which of course in English is Peter. The second individual that Paul flags up is James, who is the half-brother of Jesus. Shares the same mother, Mary, but he has a human father, Joseph. Now James didn't believe in Jesus, we know from uh, other references in the Gospels, until that particular point when he encountered his risen half-brother. And then he mentions Paul himself. And there are three groups that he lists who saw the risen Jesus. There are the twelve, 
the core disciples as they were known, minus of course at this point Judas, who had hung himself out of shame for uh, betraying Jesus. But they're more usually referred to as, of course, literally the eleven, meaning basically the core apostles, the original ones. And then more than 500 at the same time, mostly who are still alive when Paul was writing around about 50 AD at that point. Now Paul's own words at the opening of this chapter must have played over in his mind as he faced beheading for his faith in Christ under Emperor Nero in Rome around 64 AD. He said, he wrote here, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you will have believed in vain. So his faith and their faith is based on real historical events, eyewitness accounts. And thirdly, these truths are physical truths. That is that Christ died and to demonstrate the physical reality of his death, he was buried. And then he rose and to demonstrate the physical reality of his resurrection, he was seen. And Paul lists his appearances to these three individuals and these three groups. What's more, all four events, the death, the burial, the resurrection and the appearances must have been equally physical. That is, the Jesus who was raised and seen was the same Jesus who had died and was buried. Now some people claim that Paul didn't believe in the empty tomb. But if Jesus' body had been buried... But if it was Jesus' body that, that, that was raised and seen, then the tomb must have been empty. In other words, the resurrection isn't a synonym for life after death, some kind of vague, just simply spiritual uh, thing. The resurrected and transformed body of Jesus was actually the first bit of the material universe to be redeemed. And it is a pledge that the whole universe will one day be transformed. Fourthly, these truths are biblical truths. He writes that they took place according to the scriptures, witnessed to by the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament. An encounter, you might recall, with the risen Lord was an essential qualification for the apostolate. In the Nicene Creed, which we will say and affirm later, the church is said to be apostolic. That means it's based on the teachings of the apostles who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And fifthly, these are theological truths. They have enormous significance in terms of the relationship between God and us. We deserve to die for our own sins, but he died our death instead of us. That is a most astonishing sacrifice when you imagine what Christ experienced on the cross, being abandoned by God the Father for the first time ever. Horrific that he would be estranged from his Father, that the, 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 the Trinity were fractured for the first time. 
The death and the resurrection of Christ then, the central, historical, physical, biblical and theological truths, that's what goes to make the gospel. If that foundation were ever lost, the whole superstructure of the Christian faith would come to an end. Well, we obviously, well, I obviously believe that it is true. But so what? Is there a good news, a gospel for today? Well, we have, firstly, the gospel events, don't we? Although the apostles rehearsed the whole saving career of Jesus, including his life and ministry, his exhortation, his future coming, they concentrated on his death and resurrection, both as historical happenings and significant saving events. Secondly, we have the gospel witnesses. The apostles appealed to a twofold evidence to authenticate Jesus. The first was the Old Testament scriptures, which pointed forward to him and uh, really um, outlined what it was he was going to do. And then we have the testimony of the apostles themselves. We are witnesses, Peter keeps on repeating in his sermons throughout the Acts of the Apostles. So this one Christ has a double attestation and we have no liberty to preach a Christ of our own fantasy or even to focus on our own experience since we were not eyewitnesses of the historical Jesus. Our responsibility is rather to speak of the authentic Christ of the Old and New Testament scriptures. They are the primary witnesses And we are always secondary witnesses. Thirdly, there are the gospel promises. The gospel is good news, not only of what Jesus did by his death and resurrection, but also of what he offers us as a result, namely the forgiveness of our sins, to wipe away the past and the gift of the Holy Spirit to enable us to live new lives. Everyone needs that heavy load of guilt removed and we all need the resources of God living within us to enable us to live that way. Together they constitute salvation. They are both publicly signified in baptism. And fourthly, they don't come automatically. There are conditions What the gospel demands is a radical turning from sin to Christ, which takes the form inwardly of repentance and faith and outwardly by the sign of baptism. By these things, we change allegiance as we're transferred into the new community of Jesus, the Christian church, his body. So here then is a fourfold summary of real history. Two primary events, Christ's death and resurrection, attested by two witnesses, the prophets who predicted it and the apostles who observed and recorded it, on the basis of which God makes two promises, forgiveness and the Spirit, the pledge of eternal life, on two conditions repentance and faith. 
On uh, Saturday, May the 6th, we're hosting a morning and evening event with a guy called Dr. Gary Habermas. Dr. Habermas is a distinguished research professor and chair of the Department of Philosophy and Theology at Liberty University in the United States, where he's taught for 30 years. And the resurrection is his particular expertise. Professor Michael Martin of Boston University in the USA, in his book, The Case Against Christianity, he wishes to debunk Christianity, nonetheless refers to Habermas's work as perhaps the most sophisticated defence to date of the resurrection has been produced by Gary Habermas. Now, Lee Strobel is a journalist who set about investigating Christianity and found himself becoming a Christian. In his book, The Case for Easter, he recalls an interview he had with Gary. Before I left Habermas's office, however, I had one more question. Frankly, I hesitated to ask it because it was a bit too predictable, and I thought I'd get an answer that was just a little bit too pat. The question concerned the importance of the resurrection. I figured if I'd asked Habermas about that, he'd give me the standard reply about it being at the centre of Christian doctrine, the axis around which the Christian faith turned. And I was right. He did give me a stock answer like that. But what surprised me was that this wasn't all he said. This nuts and bolts scholar, this burly and straight-shooting debater, this combat-ready defender of the faith, allowed me to peer into his soul as he gave an answer that grew out of the deepest valley of despair he had ever walked through. Habermas rubbed his greying beard. The quick-fire cadence and debater's edge to his voice were gone. No more quoting of scholars, no more citing of scripture, no more building a case. I had asked about the importance of the resurrection and Habermas decided to take a risk by describing what happened in 1995 when his wife Debbie slowly died of stomach cancer. Caught off guard by the tenderness of the moment, all I could do was listen I sat on our porch, Habermas began. He sighed deeply and then went on. My wife was upstairs dying. Except for a few weeks, she was at home through it all. It was an awful time. This was the worst thing that could possibly happen. He turned and looked straight at me. But do you know what was amazing? My students would call me, not just one, but several of them, and say, at this time, aren't you glad about the resurrection? As sober as these circumstances were, I had to smile for two reasons. Firstly, my students were trying to cheer me up with my own teaching. And second, it worked. As I would sit there, I'd picture Job, who went through all the terrible stuff, and asked questions of God, but then God turned the tables and asked Job a few questions. I knew if God were to come to me, I'd only ask one question. Lord, why is Debbie up there in bed? And I think God would respond by asking gently, Gary, 
Did I raise my son from the dead? I'd say, come on, Lord, I've written seven books on that topic. Of course he was raised from the dead. But I want to know about Debbie. I think he'd keep coming back with the same question. Did I raise my son from the dead? Did I raise my son from the dead? Until I got his point. The resurrection says that if Jesus was raised 2,000 years ago, that he's the answer to Debbie's death in 1995. And do you know what? It worked for me while I was sitting on the porch, and it still works today. It was a horribly emotional time for me, but I couldn't get round the fact that the resurrection is the answer to her suffering. I still worried. I still wondered what I'd do raising four kids alone. But there wasn't a time when that truth didn't comfort me. Losing my wife was the most painful experience I ever had to face. But if the resurrection could get me through that, it can get me through anything. It was good for AD 30. It was good for 1995. And it's good beyond that. Habermas then locked eyes with Strobel. That's not some sermon, he said quietly. I believe that with all my heart. If there's a resurrection, there's a heaven. If Jesus was raised, Debbie will be raised, and I will someday too. Then I'll see them both. Let us pray. Grant us, Lord, the wisdom and the grace to use aright the time that is left to us here on earth. Lead us to repent of our sins, the evil we have done and the good we have not done. And strengthen us to follow the steps of your Son in the way that leads to the fullness of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.